have been selected to listen to Detroit Strange. This podcast. I was talking about, um, remember like that, like in an ad, you have been selected to win two free iPod Nanos. I yes, think every web page I clicked on in like 2006 had that ad. It was the 2006 version of, um, we've been trying to contact you about the extent of warranty on your yes. vehicle. Yes. Did you see the TikTok? I don't know who sent it to me, but it was like, that, like one of those calls reached an elevator phone. Uh-huh. And like, the just, it was like, someone was like, it was about your warranty. And you're like, um, you're talking into an elevator phone. And they're just like, <laughs> no, fuck, how do you? Them auto dialers. I mean, I think Wilding. it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, though, I, I know those jokes are going to get old. They haven't for me yet, though. Not Keep yet. them coming. They're still relatable. There's some really good ones. Yeah. They will, they'll get old once those go away. Oh, yeah. They're not going away. No, no, Damn no. Robocalls. No, no, no. Absolutely scamming. not. They are scamming. I thought you said scamming, scamming for a minute. And I was like, they are the scamming. Fish? Like salmon swimming upstream. Yes. <laughs> swimming against society's wishes. Yeah. To not have robocalls. <laughs> the salmon would be behind it. Oh, yeah. Those damn salmon. Oh, so, uh, so we have some exciting news. Yes. This is episode what? 99. Which means our next episode is episode. 12. Yeah. Good. Good job. Good job. Um. <laughs> no, episode 100. We're very excited. Yeah, we're very, very excited. We've, we've got some really fun stuff. Mm-hmm. We've already recorded it yes. because it's such a special episode. We had to do something special. Yeah. And I feel really good about it. I Me too. had a lot of fun with our super secret guest. Yes, our super secret special guest. Yes. And we're very excited to share it with you. So... Stay tuned because we'll be yeah we'll be releasing that to listen or to like to to wait. I bet we'll give some sneak peeks throughout this week. Yeah, I have a knowing knowing us and knowing how excited we are about this. We gotta amp it up. Yeah, so so stay tuned for that. Keep your eyes and ears peeled Mm because it's coming. Yeah, I also can't believe because that means we've been doing this like over two years, which I mean like. We are well over we launched, years, but... I remember we launched the summer, July 2019, because it was while I was in Europe. And, like, I remember being on the bus, like, I have a podcast just dropped. What? Uh. <laughs> like. So we are two years. Yeah. And that was after a run on the Planet Incubator. So yeah, because that's when we dropped it was on the incubator. Okay, okay. Yeah. So we're at two years. That's yeah. insane. I know. It's wild. Two, oh, sorry, not 200 episodes later. One year. Two, Nope. 100. 100 episodes. <laughs> two two years. years. There we go. That's mm-hmm. how math works. I yeah. told you I'm not good at it. <laughs> I love it, though. Yeah. So celebrate Great good night. times. Come, Come on. on. That's all we got on that song. Yeah. Um, Whoever owns it, don't talk to us. No, it's our two year. No, <laughs> I don't know. It is it's our, our two, two year, year anniversary. anniversary. Don't don't get us in trouble, please. Oh, what is that in weddings? Because I would like first year is pa- paper. Plastic. (laughs) That's why the grocery stores say paper or plastic. They're they're wondering how many years. I gotta look it up now (laughs) because I I literally looked this up earlier today for a trivia question I wrote. Because then let me let me guess. I'm gonna guess feathers. Is that a solid guess? Yeah. Okay. Feel like one has to be feathers. So according to this image I found. (laughs) 
Um, so traditional is cotton for the second year. That is kind of a flower. Kind similar. Although flowers is fourth year university, which mm-hmm. like although I said feathers, but oh. cotton is soft like feathers. <laughs> For some reason, I thought you said flowers. Like, completely already had wiped that, apparently. Oh, yeah, no, but, that would have so, made more sense. That would have been a better guess. According to this chart, so, like, it has, like, um, the traditional, modern, and then the flower oh. for each year. So the modern second anniversary gift is China. The entire country. Wow. You give it to someone. Second wedding anniversary. What an interesting choice for modern. Yeah. <laughs> like, who the hell gets China anymore? I don't know. Most people get rid of it, if anything. Right. Like, I mean, I go to Ikea. Right. That's where my dishes are from. Mm-hmm. I need to get new ones, actually, because they're kind of getting chipped and beaten mm-hmm. up. Although, I mean, if I found a really cute, like, like set at a like resale store or something that was cheap, I might get that. Yeah. But then I would kind of feel bad China if it was like, for China. No, no, no. it's not worth did it. Did you did you rub with any special China in the house? In a box in the basement, I think. <laughs> Okay, we got ours out like a couple times. They were my dad's mom's. I do remember them though. They were like off white with like roses or whatever. Uh-huh. I don't know that they were actually fancy, but they were definitely like our fancy dishes. Yeah. I've seen them before, like out in the world, and I always get excited about it. So I'm like, oh, memory of like the four times we ate off of that. I I know my mom has some china because she talks about the pain of moving it every time they move, <laughs> and just like really like. All I hear about when she talks about the China is like, I don't know why we asked for that. <laughs> Which, like, I get. It's just kind of like one of those things that you ask for. Like, back, like, well, yeah. You just, like, you know, I would never register it's, for China. Like, we were talking about wedding and baby shower registries lately just because my sister's oh. pregnant. Oh, yeah. I don't know that. Congrats to her. Yeah. So she's, they're getting ready for the baby shower. And mm-hmm. she's like, is it weird if I put this on there? And I'm like, with a registry, I feel like put whatever you want on there. And if people don't want to buy it for you, they just won't buy it for you. Um, speaking of pregnancies, I yes, have network yes. news. Ooh. I just thought of. Uh, so Joe and his wife, Kayla, from Big Dad Energy are expecting their second. Oh, Yeah, and they just announced it. So congrats to them as well. Yes, congratulations. I'd be remiss if I didn't say it. Yeah. <laughs> Hope you're listening. Yeah. <laughs> Love that for them. Yeah. Yeah. Babies. Yes. Babies all around. There's a lot of quarantine babies. I mean, yeah. What else was there to do? I don't know. I was flying solo, so I really just stared at a wall. Yeah. The whole time. Yeah. No, I just. (laughs) They're really. Yeah. Yeah. That and just like. Can't blame them. Right. You do what you can. Right. Or who. Exactly. My therapist taught me a helpful saying of just, I'm doing the best I can. Yeah. Just kind of like. Sometimes it's. It's it's hard out here sometimes. Oh, yeah. You're doing the best you can. Uh, I officially deleted all my dating apps and it felt really good, actually. I believe it. I hate dating apps. I've decided just to do the cheesy date myself. I think I've mentioned this, but like I've been actually taking myself places. Oh, sometimes like I end up places with friends instead because like. They're like, what are you doing? And whatever. Yeah. But that's also like welcome. Right. Uh, but yeah, I went to the beach this past weekend. Love that. I drove like an hour to the beach uh-huh. and it was lovely. So you're saying you went to the beach each. Let's go get away. Did you have a Bud Light? I did not. Okay. 
Bad bitch would like me a hard come by. I did sneak some like canned rosé though. Love that. <laughs> yeah. That's better than a Bud Light. Oh, I thought so. I yeah. thought it was the right choice. Uh, yeah, like I packed up my little thing and then I went on like a very short hike afterwards. Uh-huh. Um, I also had treated myself to some chicken nuggets on the way. Yeah. From where? From where? McDonald's. Okay, of course. Which they threw in a free slushie for some reason. Love that. I think they messed up the flavor combination, but it was delicious and I didn't care. And I was like, oh, look, the world's giving me a slushie. Yes. I will accept this. Thank you. Gratitude. Yes. yes. I uh, took myself out on a date last week, too. Yeah. Went to the DIA. Oh, yeah. I remember you telling me about that. Yeah, I, I did post that. some stuff on our Instagram from it, just in the stories. Yeah. So I thought they do have a really cool exhibit right now of like, mm-hmm. um, like automobile design from the 50s to the 20s to like basically now. Oh, fun. Okay. Yeah. It's free too with admission. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. I do like that. Me too. I love when like it's not mm-hmm. extra to see their fancy exhibits. My art thing of the week is I went to that Van Gogh, the walk-in Van Gogh exhibit at uh, TCF. Oh. Yeah. It's like a, um. well, I found out there's two. And I kind of want to go to the other one more, but it's not coming till October. Uh-huh. But um, the big thing is they do with like a little timeline of his life, yeah. kind of with like quotes from himself and like people around him, like his brother and things like that. But the main thing is you go into this one room and it's like the floor and all the walls have different things projected and like moving and like uh-huh. there's like undulating scenes and things like that. And like the floor turns to water during part of, you know, and yeah. it's like very like immersive. Yeah. And music's playing and like all that. And it's like a, must be like 30 or 40 minutes, like of like different content. Room. Oh, in interesting. That room, yeah. And it was beautiful. Yeah. It was nice. Uh, I found out the other one that was like smaller interactive rooms uh-huh. where you go through like a series of them rather than like just one. And I'm like, mm. that does sound cool. Mm-hmm. But I heard there's also, I think they're doing like a Monet one, possibly two, which I would love to go to that. Yeah. I was wondering, like, is it Van- just like, so they're doing different artists, it sounds like. I don't, I mean, there's two Van Gogh. <laughs> there's two Van, Van Gogh. There's Hello. You gonna do some painting? No, uh, the funny thing is I. I'm Dutch and gay or Van Gogh. He was, he was one of the artists who wasn't gay. Was he Dutch? Was he French? Hell if I know. He lived in France. I know that for much of his life. Yeah, Van Gogh is one of those ones that I feel Van like Gogh. that everyone's heard of. I think it's French. Van Gogh. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. Maybe. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. No, you think between the the two of us, one of us would know? Because I'm I, almost positive he, he's, French. he's French, but I, I might be wrong. He might be like Austrian or something. I know he spent like a lot of time in France. Okay. Gogh sounds more French to me. Well, I don't know. I'm not that. I'm not an expert, but like um, I respect Van Gogh, but it was never an artist I got like super immersed in. I do know the whole ear thing. There's like Dutch. different stories. Oh, Dutch. Okay. Yeah. He did, so he didn't actually cut his ear off or he did? He did cut his ear off, but there's different um, stories as to why. One of So one of the stories is that he went insane because he was, because oh, to clean Can't his brushes. Paint? Yeah. To clean his brushes, he would like strip them in his mouth. Yeah. So lead, Ugh. lead poisoning. Um, Another thing is, though, I think it was Gauguin was actually living with him and they were like having like some sort of dissonance uh-huh. and there was some sort of feud between them. So there's some people, I think, that kind of blame Gauguin for it. This is the Ryan Murphy series we need. 
Their oh my feud. god, that would be amazing! Actually. Season two of Feud. Yes, that would be amazing. Please Ryan do it, Ryan Murphy, if you're listening. Which Get on we know that you are right now, Ryan yes. Murphy. <laughs> uh, the world needs that more yeah. than I knew until just now. Yes. Um, but yeah, and then the other one is yeah, he was sad, so he did it himself. Yeah. Who knows? We all do. Times are tough. <laughs> he was doing mm. the best he could. I mean, his life kind of sucked. Like. He was not famous until well after he was dead. Yeah. He was a tortured artist. Anybody who's like looking at the tortured artist lifestyle being like, oh, that's so like capital R romantic. No, 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 no. You get scurvy and dine at loft. Yeah. Like Van Gogh. Yeah. Did he have scurvy? No. I, I completely I like, made that up. He was not a pirate. No, no scurvy is just you don't eat enough citrus. You I know, but a- that's mostly pirate. That's true. They don't have it. No. They're on a boat. Yep. There's no citrus on that boat. No. That's why cruise ships have mimosas. <laughs> uh, it's true. Yep. <laughs> it's true. Nothing but facts today. <laughs> this has been brought to you by Princess Cruise Line. Join us. Yes. <laughs> um, it's not true, though. But if. Anybody wants to give us a free cruise, then we will. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Support them. Yes. And their mimosas. Yes. Oh, we're sipping on something together. Yes, we are. It's called Summer Breeze. Okay. Okay. It's basically, I made it up with what I had left. You saw me pour. I brought yes. many bottles that were almost empty over, poured uh-huh. them all together. But we have some dark rum, mm-hmm. some Cointreau. Yep. Um, some coconut creamer. Yep. Pineapple juice. Yep. A little extra coconut. Yep. And a little bit of Corona lime seltzer. Yes. <laughs> just to top it off. Yeah, just you know, give it a little flavor, a little lift. Yeah, no, I wanted to go summery today, even though it's been kind of like every other day of doom and gloom around here, weather-wise. Yeah, it seems to kind of either be raining or. Mm-hmm. About to rain or sunny. We, it, it's it like one or the other. While, yeah, it's like every other day. Yeah, Saturday was beautiful. It was. I next weekend might be beautiful. I don't know. Who knows? I'm just pretending it is. Uh, yeah. But how would you feel about a story? You know, I would be into a story. Okay, good. Yeah. Now speaking of doom and gloom. Yes. Have I got a doom and gloom story for you today? Oh, perfect. Have you ever heard of the Bath School Massacre? Yes. (laughs) This is a heavy one. This is a heavy one. I'm going to admit it. She is a tragedy. She is a tragedy. I don't know much. I've heard of it for sure, though, because I had uh, one of my friends who was one of my coworkers when I was a lifeguard. Mm -hmm. Um, She got stationed in Bath. She's like, what even is Bath? Googled Bath, saw that. She's like, yeah, Hmm." I um, I didn't realize this. Actually, I, I have heard had heard of it before and actually producer Patty brought it to my attention, but it was already on my like maybe list, but it Uh, is such a big thing that I was like, yeah. Yeah. Um, but when I was student teaching, I actually realized one of the other student teachers in my group was at bath and I had no idea about this history. Yeah. But let's get to it for anybody who doesn't know. Yep. So we are going to on a road trip. Yeah. Zoom, zoom, zoom. Uh, buckle up. Yes. We're going about an hour and a half out of the city. Uh, north of Lansing uh-huh. to Bath, Michigan. And it's only about six. It's actually just shy of six square miles. 
Anyway. So not a huge area. Um, nice little, you know, community. Yeah, 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 condensed. But it is unfortunately too also the site of the first school bombing in world history. Also, probably one of the worst, if not the worst, school massacre to have ever happened. There's been a lot of horrible tragedies. Yeah. But also I think it's important to give those stories. Right. We can't a story just sometimes. forget them. Yeah. So a little background about the town. 1840 marks the year that the first schoolhouse, a one-room cabin, was built in Bath. Mm. About seven to ten children attended it. Uh, Eventually, small schoolhouses were being built throughout the region. Students would attend until about 10th grade or so, and then they would kind of outgrow the small facilities because you grow a lot during that age. Yeah. And by the early 20th century, roughly 10 of those small schoolhouses were in the region. However, with a growing community, the need for more educational spaces grew. This is when the idea of a consolidation came into play. So Mm. that let's have, you know, let's just have one space for all the kids. Let's put all the one rooms together and make a building. Yeah. So at a meeting on July 22nd in 1921, a state official came and pleaded to the city the case for consolidation. And three days later, a vote was held and it was passed. By mid-August of that year, a school board was set up. In some cases, though, since this was a small town, this did lead to conflicts of interest as far as who to hire for what Mm -hmm. on a few occasions. And that would cause a little dissonance here and there, but nothing huge. Um, it was thought that consolidating children, consolidating the schools would provide children with transportation that would actually be safer than them just walking alone. Yeah. And the familiarity of the same classmates throughout school would be kind of a comfort to them because they'd have the same every year. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And teachers would be a little further advanced because they could pull from a larger grouping. By November 12th of 1921, a bond proposal passed and $43,000 would go to start the school. Okay. So again, this is like in the 1920s. So that's a decent chunk, that's a chunk of, change. of change. Yeah. I did not convert for today because there's a lot of information here. Yeah. Uh, so taking on the role of superintendent was a man named Emery E. Huyck. H-U-I-C-K. I'm going to say this name a Huyck. number of times. So I, that's my best. Sure. Um, he was in his early 30s and he was actually born one of 11 children. He had a past. I know. He had a pass with an agricultural degree as well as experience as a military educator. So he's actually kind of like perfect for this job. because He was yeah. like young and like excited about it, but like yeah. also had an educational pass and also like just was allowing a crap ton of siblings growing up. So like, right. Yeah. He had the skills. So following this uh, position, teachers were hired and arrangements were made for their housing, which. Can we arrange for teachers housing today? Oh, that would be beautiful. That doesn't happen anymore. Right. Um, I mean, if they want it. Right, right. Choice, you shouldn't but force yeah, them, but yeah. like. Uh, so transportation was next, and it would be solved with six motor-driven vehicles, five of which would be standard buses, and the six of Model T. Work. There was a seventh vehicle, though, which was a horse-drawn carriage. They were, this, they were the kids from the farming area, I yeah, guess. Or yeah. just... And I didn't write this down. They actually even put a stove on the, the cart for the first winters Aww. to like keep them warm and stuff. Yeah. Uh, So with all these expenses, though, some locals were actually grumbling about their property taxes being hiked a little. Uh One of the large opposers of this was a man named Andrew Kehoe, K-E-H-O-E. You will hear this name a ton. Mm -hmm. So a little bit about him. We're going to step away and kind of look at Andrew for a second. He's kind of a roller coaster. Yeah. Yeah. He was somewhat newer to the bath area, but he was known around town as either like a nice, clever gentleman or at times maybe a little strange. 
He had moved there with his wife, who is from Bath, uh, uh-huh. but this was kind of his first experience in this in the area. He was the son of a man named Philip Kehoe, an Irish Catholic immigrant who left the Emerald Isle during the 1840s potato famine as a teen. Uh, when his father, Philip, had arrived in the U.S., he was with his six brothers and their parents. They settled in Maryland for a bit. As soon as he was old enough, though, he headed west towards the Michigan Territory and purchased farmland in Tecumseh. His uh, parents and brother then joined him, and he built a successful farm out there. He married a woman named Mary Malone, who was the daughter of an Irish Catholic priest. They would go on to have two children, one of whom unfortunately passed away, and Mary died soon after. His wife? Yes. Damn. So Philip married another Irish Catholic immigrant shortly after named Mary McGovern. They're all named Mary, aren't they? <laughs> well, there will be a third one. We'll get to oh, her. Shit. Oh, shit. Is not she married, married though. too? It's not okay. married, though. Um, they would go on, though, to have four daughters. His first wife, Mary. His second wife, fuck. His last wife, kill. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Foreshadowing. I didn't just make it. I didn't make a face. Um, <laughs> so they would go on to have four daughters. And in 1872, they would welcome their first son, Andrew Philip Kehoe. Three more children would follow after. Yeah. So Andrew would go on to be educated starting in the local schoolhouse. He would learn the basics. Outside the schoolroom, though, he would find a fascination in learning about electricity. Uh-huh. And he would study this and he would like make trinkets around the farm and things like that. Yeah. And um, he would also learn a lot from his father, including things like his father was very active in local organizations and had many ideas about how things should run best. He developed some strict thinking about taxation, mainly a distaste, uh, as well as some theories about how farmers shouldn't overproduce any given crop. Kind Uh of a supply and demand issue going on. So unfortunately, when Andrew was about 10, his mother became very ill. Throughout his teens, she would continue to become weaker and eventually be confined to a bed during about a decade long decline before becoming paralyzed and passing in November of 1890. Oh, in 1898, his father, now in his 60s, married once again, though, this time to a young woman named Frances Wilder, a widower herself with several children. Thing is, Andrew's still living with his father at this point. Yeah. This woman is three years younger than Andrew. Oh, my God. Yeah. He was in his like, was mid-20s. 12? No, he was in his mid-20s at this point because this okay. is eight years later. Okay, okay. Um, I don't know what he did for some time. I know at one point he went to school. I don't know. There's like a few gray areas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this would lead to a little mutual loathing, though, between Andrew and his new stepmother. Yeah. Eventually, the rift caused Andrew to leave his father's home. uh, And he went off to college, possibly Michigan State College, now MSU, Mm -hmm. to study electrical engineering. At some point, he also had headed south to Missouri to study electrical engineering in St. Louis. Uh, later on, one of his sisters-in-law would recall that sometime during his time in St. Louis, he was knocked unconscious oh while no. working. Had drama. Yes. Uh, she couldn't recall how, but he was in a coma floating in and out of consciousness for about two weeks. Okay. Uh, it's what good he, for you. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. After that, he headed to Iowa to work as a lineman before returning to Michigan in about 1905. Okay. When he returned, though... He, he returned to his father's home to help work on the farm. And there is now a new sibling for him. Three-year-old Irene. Come on, Irene. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, this did not make anything smoother, though. This caused a bigger rift between he and his dad. And on Sunday, September 17th, 1911, Francis, 
stepmom. Yeah. And her daughter, Irene, were picking hickory nuts in the forest behind the property. Or they were possibly in town. There's a few stories. Yeah. And they came home so Francis could make lunch. She hurried into the kitchen and to use her state-of-the-art large stove. It was either oil or gas. Uh-huh. I'm going to guess gas. And one problem with the stove, though, is that Francis always had to light the pilot to use it. Yeah. So when she did this time, though, an enormous flame engulfed her. Ah, Some, mysterious. Yeah. Uh, the source I was reading, which is a book I'll mention at the end, uh, mentioned that this would probably be in the range of 1650 degrees to about 200 or 2280 degrees. So that's real fucking hot. That's real. Yeah. Um, at this point, Irene came running in from outside because she had been outside. Philip, the father, tried as best he could to get to her, but his old age was slowing him down. And Andrew heard the screams and came running. Andrew grabbed a pitcher of water and hurled it onto her burning body. However, in a gas. gas fire, this is the worst idea because it spreads it more. Oh, shit. That is true. With gas. Also, in that kind well, of heat. It's not like natural gas, like gas, like car gas, right? Yeah, like a kerosene. Okay, okay, probably. okay. So it helps the fire spread. Yeah. Also, the, the water boils pretty much almost instantaneously. Yeah. Just all around bad. Yeah, no and In this situation, in the book, it kind of actually said something that's not great, but you used to think, it used to be thought that you should use flour or baking soda in those types of fires. You should not, because they will catch on fire too. You should smother it with some sort of blanket, preferably a damp one. Because okay. that will smother the fire. Uh, anybody who listens to my favorite murder, we all went on a roller coaster a few months ago with this. Uh-huh. Uh Yeah, but smother. Okay, okay. Yeah. Just, you know, a little little thing. That's good to know because I still thought the baking soda was the thing. I did too. Yeah, no, it's it's just been kind of, it's like an old wives' tale. Like it yeah. used to be the thing, but mm, no. I, mean, I, I guess it. we have fire extinguishers now too. Well, that's the best thing. If you have that, please use that first. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, the water causes a housewarming gift and my friend who gave it to me, Grace was just like, in case it gets too warm. I mean, it's a good idea. It's a great housewarming yeah, gift. Because nobody buys that it. themselves. Right. Um, so the water caused the flames to spread all over Francis's body and they liquefied basically whatever skin she had left. Uh, they had no phone in their house. So Andrew and little Irene headed to the nearby Murphy house to call a doctor. A pregnant Hetty Murphy answered the door and was in her kitchen and she would later recall the interaction. She heard a simple knock at the door and opened it to see Andrew Kehoe. Andrew asked very calmly if he could call the doctor. When asked if someone was sick, he responded, quote, no, Franny got burned. Very calmly. Yeah. He then asked her to also call a priest. To bless the dead body because she's been burnt alive. Seriously. And he was like very calm, supposedly. The family gathered around Francis, who cried out in pain as the doctor declared there was basically nothing that could be done further, and the priest delivered the last rites. Oh, God, that poor woman. This would go down in the books as a mishap, but accident. Yeah. However, later, people might question that. Yeah. So after all this, Philip Kehoe's health began to decrease more rapidly, but Andrew, now in his early 40s, would turn his gaze, his gaze towards mm. a woman named Ellen Price, known better to most people, as Nellie. Okay. They had met years before at Michigan State, where they briefly dated, and Andrew thought this was a great time for a reunited whatever. So Nellie Price, she was born in 1875, also the daughter of Irish Catholic immigrants. 
Her mother had passed when she was 18 and she was the eldest daughter and in charge of helping raise the other children in her family. Her family lived in Bath, where her father farmed uh, land owned by his older brother, Lawrence. Uh In 1908, that family moved to Lansing to be closer to Lawrence. Mm -hmm. Because you see, Uncle Lawrence made money early on in the auto industry by opening a parts factory for Ford. Uh Then he turned to politics and became kind of known in Lansing circles. Yeah. So Uncle Lawrence got the money. Yeah. May 14th, just seven months after Francis's death, Andrew and Nellie were married. Uh-huh. They moved to Tecumseh, where Andrew continued working on his father's farm. But Philip passed on January 8th, 1915, a few years later. And Nellie and Andrew seemed content with married life. But they didn't really socialize, socialize much in Tecumseh. They mostly in kept in them. Tecumseh? I don't know. I don't know either now. Because I've heard Tecumseh, but I don't know if Tecumseh is also one. I might be saying it wrong. I don't know. I've heard something. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm sorry. I, it's the last time I'm going to say it. Well, I might say it one more time. Okay. We're getting, we're, we're leaving there soon. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, so they were the other, the, the only social thing they did was attend Catholic church. Okay. This is where we're going to get a little bit of a weird story. We're going to see a little weird. Okay. Now. Okay. So after attending the church, uh, parishioners were asked to help build a new sanctuary building. And each pay $200 to do this. Uh-huh. They were basically billed. Yeah. Heho chose to ignore the bill and just stopped showing up. Mm-hmm. He also forbade his wife to attend as well. So just like a little weird. Just a little weird. Yeah. Just very much like I want all the things, but I don't want to pay for all the things. Yeah. Just people who don't like taxes. He'll go. Yeah, um, yeah. Another account tells of a time that Andrew and Andrew Kehoe, now the same thing. Yeah, He's yeah, the only yeah. Kehoe uh, other than Nellie, but I'll just call her Nellie. Yeah. And there was another time that he thought he was cheated during a livestock sale. So he had purchased eight steer from a neighbor and he had let them graze in a clover field that was recovering from a bit of a flooding from a storm yeah, yeah. the day before. Soon two of the cattle bloated badly from the damp food and they quickly died. After selling their hides in town, Kehoe returned to the man that he had bought them from and demanded half of his payment back, which he did not get. Uh-huh. So. Very kind of aware of yeah. finances and not a great way. No. Uh, in 1917, Nellie's uncle Lawrence unfortunately passed away, leaving his sizable estate in Bath, as well as a large sum of money going to both charities and the Price family itself. Mm-hmm. The 80-acre farm was ideal for the couple. So Kehoe talked to Richard Price, one of Lawrence's other brothers, to see if he could buy the property. Uh, Richard, Lawrence's widow, Beulah, and their attorney, Joseph H. Dunibach, D-U-N-N-E-B-A-C-K-E. Love it. Uh, Help negotiate a deal. I will say his name a few more times. Okay. Kehoe would purchase the property for $12,000, $6,000 down now, and the rest would be held in a mortgage with interest to the Lawrence Price estate. Uh-huh. March 27, 1919, the deed was placed in Andrew's hands, and the property in Tecumseh was put up for sale. <laughs> uh, the same neighborhood actually he had the dispute about the cattle with. Yeah. That's the guy who bought it. Okay. So he sold it for eight grand. Okay. Yeah. So Nellie, having grown up in Bath, was welcomed back to the community, and her husband was thought to be an interesting character. To many, it looked like Nellie had done very well for herself. They were like, ooh, who's this? Because his farm equipment was a little fancy, because again, he's like a tinkerer, yeah, electrist. Tinker. Yeah. Uh, he also dressed up to farm. His farming attire was a suit, vest, shiny shoes with coiffed hair at all times. Well, that just seems impractical. I know. Uh, he was also, though, very helpful to neighbors. He was willing to lend a hand. 
many people just liked him yeah. right away. Soon after, they actually became active in social things. He, they became stalwart members of the Friday Afternoon Club, where they especially enjoyed playing things like euchre. Yay. Yeah. A Michigan uh, classic. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kehoe started to attend local farm bureaus and organization meetings, and he was kind of known about being an expert on the equipment. Yeah. So doing pretty well. Yeah. So despite looking quite financially comfortable, though, they didn't own a car, uh-huh. which not everybody did. Again, yeah, this yeah. is the 20s. And often their neighbors, David and Lulu Hartz, H-A-R-T-E-S, uh, would drive them into Lansing for shopping. Okay. Lulu would regularly take Nellie yeah, on these yeah. kind of excursions. However, one day in March of 1920, David Hart couldn't find one of their pet dogs, a small terrier. The dog had been out in the front yard facing the Kehoe property, as he often did. One account of this day tells Kehoe, quote unquote, accidentally shooting the dog. In another version of the story, Lulu asked Kehoe if he had seen the dog. Kehoe replied that he had seen the dog and uh, that it was bearing a bone along the fence on his property. So he, quote, Shot the damned nuisance. Oh, God. And a third version tells a story of Lulu and Nellie returning from a trip to Lansing to find the dog poison. And Lulu knew in her gut it was key. Yeah. Regardless of how that dog died, Lulu never took Nellie to Lansing again. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So we're going to switch back to the school for a little bit. Okay. Uh, The Consolidated School opened in the fall of 1922 with 236 students. This is when Hoyk, the superintendent, started uh-huh. pushing for accreditation, which is not a free process, by the way. Mm. And uh, it was granted by May of 1925 by the University of Michigan. So he's trying to make it like a really good institution. Yeah, yeah, too. Yeah. Like not just a school, a damn good one. Exactly. Uh, as previously mentioned, Kehoe was amongst those unhappy with how much was being spent on the school. Yeah. So as the school board treasurer, Enos Peacock, came up. Uh, from election, Kehoe decided, along with four other men, to run for the trustee position. Uh-huh. Kehoe would go on to win the position and start a three-year term. So the fellow board trustees elected Kehoe as treasurer. Uh-huh. Kehoe would delight in this position as he was very meticulous with keeping books balanced. Not a penny was out of place. Like, he literally knew where every penny. Yeah. Every penny was. Uh, but this attitude wouldn't make meetings particularly pleasant. Yeah. As he would often make his own demands. Uh-huh. One of which was demanding that Hoyk no longer attend board meetings. So the superintendent, he was trying to kick him out of the school board meetings. Uh, this was denied, however, and also kind of illegal. As others thought that the involvement was a good thing. Yeah. So things are in motion for Kehoe and Hoyk to butt heads many more times after this, though. Uh-huh. This was ramped up probably when Kehoe somehow convinced the board to cut the superintendent vacation time to one week a year. And decrease the annual pay from $200 annually to $100. What a fucking dick. Yep. Kehoe was also the one to hand out paychecks and frequently would just kind of forget to bring it to Hoik. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, around this time, due to his uh, fantastic bookkeeping, Kehoe was also asked to cover as township clerk a year for a year after Maud Detlef, the current clerk, passed away unexpectedly. Unexpectedly? I mean. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. <laughs> uh, he took the offer expecting to be renominated for the position. However, another candidate was chosen by the party the next year. So his confrontation reputation was kind of catching up with him. Yeah. A little bit more about him. The penny pincher. Yeah. So 
up through March of 1921, he made regular mortgage payments. Uh-huh. Remember the mortgage to the, the price estate? Yeah. Almost about two years or so. And those were with interest. Everything's beautiful. Then he just stopped. There was not a word said by the Price family uh, or to the Price family or anything like that or to the lawyer Dunback until a letter arrived from Kehoe basically stating that he could make payments in 1922. So the next year he'll start paying again. Interesting. The estate was happy to grant an extension, though. They weren't really like. It was like the family. So like they weren't. Right. They were like they were just like, pay us when you can kind of probably. So a few more years passed. He wrote another letter asking if they would be evicted for not paying. Uh-huh. The lawyer responded, no, that's not the plan. Yeah. So the lack of payments continued. And in August of 1925, the estate released 60% of its legacy payments to the heirs, uh-huh. which included Nellie. Yeah. She collected $1,200 at this time. Uh-huh. So while picking up the check, the defaulted mortgage was not even mentioned. I was going to say they should have taken the cut out of her paycheck or the twelve hundred. Well, wait. Okay, okay. A month later, the probate judge overseeing the estate received a letter from Nellie in which she asked for an appraisal of the property. Yet, still no payments were made. By March of nineteen twenty-six, Dunbach, the lawyer, was required, as per the estate, to give Nellie another five hundred dollars because remember she had only received sixty yeah. percent. Uh, at this time, he decided to apply that to the mortgage and wrote her a letter as an explanation. Yeah. Nellie wrote back. A thank you. And she asked how much more was owned. Owed. Yeah. Mentioning that Andrew was still very busy with work and the school board, but that they would like to come in soon to discuss their debt. Yeah. However, in the days that followed, Kehoe contacted Kelly Searle, a well-known area lawyer. Uh-huh. Searle agreed that the executors had inappropriately relocated the funds to pay the mortgage without Nellie's consent. So in August of 1926, it was a surprise to all that the Kehoe showed up to probate hearing no one had told them the time or place the kehoes or the other the kehoes okay yeah uh because they were going through the the lawyer basically yeah. so judge MacArthur found that the price estate had acted inappropriately but that applying the money the mortgage would be in everyone's best interest zero the lawyer urged her the clients to do this as well nelly agreed but kehoe didn't want this and so he basically insisted the money go to nelly immediately Nellie gave in to her husband and she was issued a check and they left. Uh-huh. Two more months went by. No payments were made. Doom back at his wits end, basically, because it's been years at this point. Yeah. Um, he basically decided to file a motion of foreclosure with the county sheriff uh-huh. to kind of scare them into making a plan. Yeah. Had no actual, we're going right. to take you out. We're, yeah. But when he, he drove to the uh, sheriff's Fox's office, that's his name. Yeah. He was out, so he decided to mail it instead. Later that afternoon, he ran into one of Nellie's sisters, Elizabeth Price. Uh-huh. Elizabeth actually told her him, though, that Nellie was actually pretty sick. Oh, yeah. At this point, which we'll get to in a little bit. But um, he so he basically agreed to not move ahead with that plan because she was like, don't don't fuck don't with don't me now. Yeah. yeah. And so he tried to send a telegram to Fox to say, don't do that. However, it was too late. The notice had already gone to the Kehoe's. Uh-huh. When given the papers, Kehoe simply stated, quote, If it hadn't been for that $300 school tax, I might have paid off the mortgage. Yeah, that $300 compared to the $6,000 he owed. Yeah, that was really what did you in. Yep. Yep. Mind you, too, 
that original farm had sold for two grand over what the down payment was right. on this one was. So, so they had two grand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think their farm did very well, though, as far as like a farm goes. He's out there in a fucking suit. What do you expect? Yeah. Yeah. So back to the timeline, though. So we're going to we went yeah. ahead a little bit just because that's all. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But we're going to go back to July 4th, 1924. Blasts were heard throughout the farmland surrounding Keogh's property. Sydney and Charlotte Howell would later ask Nellie about the unconventional fireworks, to which she would respond, quote, the little boy is having some fun. Who's the little boy? Do they have a son? Or is nope. they just talking about Andrew? I'm talking about, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Because uh, Andrew also liked to, like, his farms is, used to use explosives to, like, get rid of tree stumps and stuff like that. Yeah. Sure. So David Hart, another neighbor, told a story about going to the Kehoe's to borrow a seat for, I think, a tractor or something. And this is where he saw Kehoe pushing some horses, two horses, working in the field much past their breaking point. One of them would go on to die later that night. Oh, my God. When Hart saw Kehoe, the conversation went something like this. I see you had bad luck with your horse. Yes, damn him. He ought to have been killed years ago. He didn't pull and we had a mix up. And when I got through with him, he was dead. So gross. Yeah. To literally work an animal to death. Yep. And like not care. Yeah. There's no, there's no remorse in that. Whatsoever. No, not even the slightest bit. Uh, so while Kehoe seemed a little strange to some, he did manage to win over people during the winter of 1925 into 1926 by defeating a large bee infestation in the school. Okay. Basically, there was large nests hibernating below. When the heat turned on, they were like, oh, spring, we come out now. Originally, Hoyk, the superintendent and the principal, Floyd Huget, tried to do something, but it didn't work. Uh-huh. And Kehoe came in and said, I didn't take care of it on the third try. Nobody knows how he did it, but he did take care of it. He also now had access to every nook and cranny in the school. Mm. And kind of became like a makeshift make maintenance man. Like they had a janitor and a night janitor. Yeah. But he kind of like became the other go-to guy. for like guy. Yes. In October of 1925, Job Slate, a local with a vehicle, was all too happy to take others along for the ride. And Kehoe asked him for some help. Originally, he needed supplies to repair the school. And Slate was more than happy to help. But later that fall, Kehoe asked Slate to go to Jackson for him, a much farther trip than Lansing. And he thought it over for a bit, and he ultimately agreed to go. When he asked what Kehoe needed, the request was simply pyrotol, which Uh is another explosive. Yeah. And to blast some of the tree stumps from his farm, a common way. Oh, I already said that. Yeah. Uh, I hate when I just get like conversational and I tell something that I've written for I told, later. Yeah. Where it's like, oh shit. Because I'm like, I want to tell you this thing now. Uh, so the two men drove a bit past Jackson, even though there were certainly cl- closer places to go. Yeah. And they loaded 10 boxes of Pyrodol, so about 500 pounds, and four boxes of caps, blasting caps. Mm, sus. Yep. Keyhole told Slight that if he knew anyone who needed any Pyrodol, send him his way. He'd charge just, just a little more than what he paid. Yeah. Weird thing though, sometime later, uh, Slight actually did have a friend who yeah. needed some, so he sent him his way. But when he contacted Kehoe, he had none left. Hmm. 500 pounds. That's a lot. By February of 1926, though, it wouldn't matter. Kehoe would no longer need rides. He bought himself a Ford truck. Still didn't pay the mortgage, though. No. Oh, no, no. Definitely not. Uh, but things weren't out that rosy. That summer, Nellie, like I said, she would develop some serious health problems. They would uh-huh. have her in and out of the hospital. Throughout the fall and winter, she would get mind-numbing headaches, basically, followed by a severe cough. At first, the diagnosis was tuberculosis, Uh but it was later determined to be asthma. Okay. 
not super similar, uh, but uh, no. I give them the benefit of history that they probably didn't have the best instruments back then. Yeah. So around the same time, Andrew Kehoe was actually in the woods on the edge of the property when a tree crashed through and landed on his noggin. Oh, another head trauma. Uh huh. He didn't pass out this time. There was no coma or anything like that, but he did return covered in blood. Uh And I mean, it just can't be good. No, I can't imagine. Two head traumas. No. That we know of. Yeah. So by fall of 1926, tensions on the school board were actually on the rise when Hoyt's salary was raised back to $200. Yeah. Despite Kehoe's objections. And they kept mounting as Kehoe was constantly trying to save money and Hoyk was constantly trying to improve the school with, you know, new things like books. Yeah. Updated resources, pictures for the wall. So they were like a little more stimulating. Yeah. Um, you know, playground yeah. equipment. That same fall, the school janitor, Frank Smith, had a feeling there might be a leak in one of the pipes in the basement. Hoyk held a flashlight for him while he investigated, but he found no leak. What's more upsetting, though, is that had he looked closer, he might have seen something weird in the ceiling. Mm. Mid-November of 1926, Kehoe visited Lansing to buy two boxes of 40% Hercules dynamite. A few days later, he returned to buy several bla- uh, blasting caps and two more boxes of Hercules, eventually making another trip for more bla- blasting caps. I wrote blazing accidentally, but it's supposed to be blasting. But I wrote blazing both times, which is weird. Uh, by December, he made another trip to Lansing by himself to buy a Winchester rifle and 100 rounds of ammunition. Oh, God. It's <laughs> never a good sign when a crazy white dude buys a gun. It really is not. Yeah. December 31st of 1926, uh, while most of the community was celebrating in regular ways, you know, little smoochies and things, uh, the Keyhole Farm just lit right up at midnight. Of what day? December 31st. Oh, so okay. New, Year's Eve. New Year's Eve. Yeah. A few days later, Harry Cushman, a neighbor, was talking to Jobs, Job Slate, another neighbor, uh-huh. all about it. When Slate and his wife paid a visit to the key hose a few days later, he asked him about it. Conversation with a little something like this. I heard you were shooting off dynamite New Year's Eve. Yes, I thought I'd shoot some off. I put some out and wired it up and set it for 12 o'clock. So he had figured out how to make a timed yep. explosion. By February of 1927, with still no mortgage payments having been made, Michigan State College professor made an offer on the property, but that was withdrawn because the taxes were so high. Uh-huh. There was interest from others as well. A potential buyer approached Dunbach, so the lawyer. Yeah. But that guy was like, no, no, no. I don't want nothing to do with this. You're going to have to go talk to those, those Price sisters. Right. I don't, I don't want to do with this. But nothing came of that. March 31st, though, Kehoe visited Dunbach with some news that someone wanted to buy the farm. Uh-huh. The deal was crappy, though. <laughs> Basically, uh-huh. uh, in return for the farm, Kehoe would be offered equity on an unnamed piece of property and would have to sign an option agreement. Huh. And Dunback was like, that's not a good deal. So nothing really came of it. They continued living on this farm that they were not paying for. Yeah. This would actually. And then he would run into Dunback a few weeks later and be like, that was good advice. Yeah. That would be their last meeting. Somewhere in the early spring of 1927, um, he, Kehoe would try to create another political career once more after uh, being nominated for the position of county justice of the peace. Unfortunately, he would be defeated in uh-huh. this as well. 
shortly after this, his 69-year-old neighbor, Alan McMullen, was watching Kehoe installing light, a lighting system on a neighbor's farm, and they began chatting. Went a little something like this. Have you any use for a horse? I don't know. I expect I could use one once in a while. Well, there's two horses over in a barn. I'm tearing the barn down. Come on over and get one. Perhaps. How much will you give me for a horse? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm not interested in purchasing a horse. Uh-huh. So a few days later, Kehoe arrived at McMullen's with a horse and a harness. He left Kit, the horse, who was blind in one eye, with McMullen. Uh-huh. McMullen was surprised, but he was delighted. You know. Yeah. Okay, thank you. And a few nights later, McMullen and Kehoe were on a friend's porch when Kehoe reached into his pocket, pulled out a piece of typewritten paper, and handed it to McMullen. It read, May 4th, 1927. Received from Alan McMullen. $120 in full payment for one bay mare, 10 years old, blind in left eye, 1,800 pounds, named Kit. $120, A.P. Kehoe. It was a damn bill! No, ma'am. He handed him a bill. That's, you can't ask, hey, do you want a horse? No, I think I'm good. Shows up the horse. Here's the horse. And then days later with a bill. Fuck you. Mm-hmm. So did you give the horse back? Wow. McMullen was shocked and he didn't know what to do because it was also fucking weird. So he held on to the horse for a few more days and he knew that Kehoe was going to visit N- Nellie at the hospital. Yeah. So he didn't know if he was going to be home, but on May 7th, around 8 a.m., he saw the Ford in the yard. So he decided to go knock on the door and bring to bring the horse back. Yeah. And no answer. So he tried again. He went uh, around to the back. No answer. No answer. So he went to the neighbors across the street, David Hart, to ask if he'd seen him. And David suggested calling. No answer. So this was getting kind of weird. And he decided to try the door one more time because now he was like kind of moderately concerned, but also weirded out. Yeah. And. Kehoe answered the door. He was there. Uh-huh. So he had been sleeping. And he, which is a weird time for a farmer. He's yeah. sleeping. So let's just, yeah. So he invited McMullen in, to which he told him that he wanted to return the horse. Kehoe was surprised, but offered him a glass of cider. It was actually a pleasant exchange. A few days later, on the day the actual horse was, re- uh, a few days later, the actual horse was returned. And Kehoe told McMullen he had made a terrible mistake. And the whole thing was just really fucking weird, basically, yeah. and left a very like unsettling feeling. No, for sure. Like, it's a weird situation. Yeah. Why are you trying to force this horse on me and then also get money from me? Like, just keep your fucking horse. No. And, keep and your horse yourself. He was like always trying to force people to buy shit from him that like they didn't want. Right. Um, There's another story, actually, when he sold his Tecumseh farm. Yeah. He didn't want to like leave these like. He had a ton of wood or something like that. He didn't want to leave the wood, so he forced another neighbor to buy it because he didn't like the guy who bought the farm. Uh-huh. So he forced another neighbor to buy, like, a ton of wood from him, even though that guy didn't need it. So, like, he was always doing that to people. That's Even from him. early on. By early May of 1927, janitor Frank Smith began to notice that the back doors of the school had a split lock that would eventually stop working. Uh-huh. And around the time he also that same time he also noticed a few trapdoors in the basement, one of which was open. Then he recalled having seen them open three or four times, uh-huh. and he hadn't done that. Also around early May, payday uh, came around, and Ward Keys, a bus driver, 
was receiving his check from Kehoe when he dropped the paycheck after his foot slipped off the clutch for a second. They kind of freaked out. And this resulted in a weird exchange of words. Kehoe basically said, you better keep that. That may be the last you will ever get. Yikes. Just weird. Yeah. So around this time, his neighbor Lulu Hart noticed that Kehoe had odd cargo, not the everyday farmer kind in the car. Yeah. A few other neighbors noticed he'd make frequent trips to Lansing. At first, they thought to visit Nellie in the hospital because she was in and out. But then they noticed tarped boxes in his. Yeah. So he's getting shit. Yeah. Friday, May 13th, Friday the 13th, uh, Monty Ellsworth, neighbor, and Kehoe met up to target shoot, something they'd kind of talked about before. And then uh, on the day before, basically, Kehoe came and said, you said you do that with me. We've never done that. We're doing it now. Kind of a thing. Uh Uh-huh. And they met up around 8.30 a.m. Kehoe hit every mark, every target. He was a really good shot, apparently. And after shooting, Ellsworth walked back to Kehoe's truck and noticed a crate filled with rifle shells, about a thousand or so. Kind uh-huh. of an exorbitant amount. Yeah. The next day, Saturday, May 14th, Mark Nelly and Kehoe, well. Um, their anniversary. Yeah, their 15th anniversary. The anniversary of. Oh, I was going to have you make it up. Oh. The 15th anniversary, um, that is the wedding of Hat. Yep, 15th anniversary, Hat. Um, Now you're going to look it up for real, aren't you? I am, just because (laughs) I want to know. No, no, I do too. Let me know in a second, because Nellie was actually in the hospital, though, so they couldn't celebrate, and Kehoe spent the afternoon settling accounts, but no mortgage payments, just other accounts. Yeah, no, fuck that mortgage. Yep. Also, you want to know what the 15th anniversary is? Crystal. Crystal. Ooh. Traditional is crystal, modern is watches. Yeah. Which is in which is in watches. Yeah. Quartz. I literally wrote a trivia question about that today. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. yeah. So on Sunday, May 15th, there was actually a construction crew working on a bridge near Bath who reported a large amount of dynamite that had gone missing from their supplies. Weird. I wonder where it could have gone. I know. The same day, Kehoe was actually planning on picking up Nellie from the hospital and told her sisters that he would be dropping her off in Jackson to stay with some friends. But due to the rain, he was called by the hospital and asked to wait one more day. Yeah. On Monday, May 15th, David Hart had a friendly, uh, uh, sorry, had a friend possibly interested in Kehoe's horse. Uh-huh. So they visited the farm and noticed Kehoe carrying bundles of straw into the hen house. The men chit-chatted a bit, and then the horse was shown to the prospective buyer who thought that $100 was way too high for it. Yeah. Uh, at that point, though, Hart noticed a pair of thin copper wires on the ground reaching from the hen house to a tool shed. He thought Kehoe must be preparing to install electricity into the farm, as there were currently actually linemen right outside the city bringing wired yeah. electricity into the city. Yeah. Later that day, Kehoe picked up Nellie. They spent the evening with her sisters in Lansing, had a great time before heading back to Bath. Uh-huh. Tuesday, May 17th, Kehoe stopped by Ellsworth to try and trade rifles, uh-huh. adding, quote, I like that rifle of yours. Will you give me $25 difference for this rifle of mine? Weird. Uh, but no deal was, was made. Uh-huh. So back then, uh, May also marked the end of the school year. So this was actually like basically the last week of school at this point. Yeah. And Kehoe received a call on this day from Bernice Sterling, a first grade teacher. She asked if she could use some of the land on his property to have a stu- uh, picnic with her students. Uh-huh. 
her when she was planning to do it, she said Thursday, to which he responded, quote, Well, if you're going to have a picnic, you better have it right away. Yikes. Later that night, Nellie's sisters tried to call, and Kehoe told them that he had dropped her off at a friend's in Jackson, and he'd be retrieving her on Thursday. After this call, his neighbor noticed something odd, though. Kehoe was carrying arms full of straw into the house now. He, he wasn't a chicken farmer. And it's too late for straw mattresses. I feel like they... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the same night at 8.30 p.m., there was actually a student leaving a performance for the PTA at the school, and he noticed a guy standing out front of the school, just chilling kind of weirdly in the dark, who happened to be Kehoe. Because all the students actually knew him. He was there so frequently, and yeah, he did say hi to them. Guy. He actually wasn't creepy. He was very friendly, reportedly. Like, he said hi in the morning and all that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, the morning of Wednesday, May 18th, started with storms hovering over the area. And shortly after dawn, Kehoe loaded something into his truck and drove into town. It was an urgent package addressed to Clyde B. Smith, a Lansing insurance man who he knew as they had work- a working relationship through the school board. Uh-huh. The box had stenciling on it that wrote, quote, high explosives dangerous. Kehoe dropped it off by the railway depot and arranged for a morning delivery to Lansing. It said explosives on it? High explosives dangerous. On the package, like on the outside. On the outside, stenciled on. Why did they take it? They did. Um, a man named Detlef ran into Kehoe in town and they had a little chit chat and he asked when the next board meeting was. Kehoe told them either the 19th or 20th. He also asked Kehoe to come check out a problem with the well at school. The men drove over to the school and Kehoe remembered the board meeting was actually Friday the 20th for some reason. Uh-huh. Kehoe seemed to become a little agitated and started to check his watch, 8.25 a.m. He told Detlef that the school was beginning school and he'd have to check the pump later. But Detlef pointed out that the school actually ran on Central Time uh-huh. and not on Eastern Time. So it was only 7.25. There was still plenty of time. But after a few minutes, Kehoe began to yell that he was in a hurry and left abruptly. Mm. Meanwhile, children all over the city were preparing for their school day, eating breakfast, helping around the farm, trying to contain their excitement over the last few days of school. Uh, Some students woke up that morning, you know, after being sick, they were about to return. Some woke up sick that day, you know, normal school stuff. Some traveled with their siblings, some dropped off their siblings, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. The day started and the year was wrapping up and some daily protocols were going on. Yeah. And they changed to accommodate the incoming summer break. Seniors were finishing up exams with their superintendent in one room. The second grade teacher was urged by her students and finally uh, conceded to read one more story in the story corner. Some upperclassmen were done with exams and headed out into the local field to pick flowers. The fifth and sixth grade classrooms actually switched so the sixth graders could have a better exam space. Okay. At 8.45 a.m. though, despite where anybody in the town of Bath was, the town would come together in one instant. This is when a wire connected to a clock under the school set off a spark, fired along a series of wires, each connected to blasting caps under the north end of the building. The north end of the school would explode. Walls would go up about four feet before crashing back down to the ground and crumbling. Simultaneously, screams and cries could be heard all over. Some were crushed, some were catapulted from where they were, some were covered in thick layers of plaster dust, some were struck by shrapnel. It was estimated that about 230 to 275 children were in the building at the time of the explosion. Oh my God. Yeah, it's terrible. Um, it was so big that windows of nearby homes were blown out. 
uh, neighbors began to run towards the school. News spread very fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the same time across town, another clock set off another reaction. Lulu Hart heard a loud thump outside. She went outside and she thought she had heard a gunshot on the Kehoe property. That's when she saw something coming from one of the roofs. Flames had taken over one of the buildings. Uh-huh. Uh, Ellsworth, we've mentioned him, saw smoke pouring out of the Kehoe barn from his property. Then his wife ran outside and told him about the school where their son was in second grade. Oh, God. They jumped in their Ford and headed towards the school. Uh, the Howells pulled up to the Kehoe farm to see it completely becoming engulfed in flames. But through the smoke, Howell made out a figure next to the building backing up a truck. The figure got out, pulled a funnel from the gas tank and got in before disappearing and reemerging once again. Before getting on the road, Kehoe pulled up next to them and said, quote, Boys, you are my friends. You better get out of here. You better go down to the school. Then he drove off in the direction of the school. Uh, back at the school, everything was in panic mode, as you can yeah. imagine. Superintendent Hoyk was trying to get students out safely, hoping someone would bring a ladder because they were in like a second story space. Uh, kids were trying to jump out of the second story window. And again, the explosion had happened in the north end, and this was like more the yeah. south end. And we'll get to more about that. So the fifth graders who had switched classrooms, um, unfortunately, like their room had gone down on the sixth graders they had switched with. Mm-hmm. Uh, that second grade classroom, though, if they had been sitting in their seats, it would have been a worse space for them. So that's why story time was actually kind of good. Uh-huh. Uh, an area was quickly established as a makeshift morgue in the middle of kind of the grounds. And nearby houses were turned into makeshift hospitals. Mm-hmm. Plans were being quickly about how to look through the rubble to find everyone. Students were buried beneath boards, walls, unfortunately, one another in some cases. There was one story, though, of two friends, Ava and Lillian. They were two 13-year-old girls. And they basically realized they could hear each other under the rubble. And they talked to each other a little bit. And out of the 26 students in their class, they were the only ones they could hear. Um, and they remembered learning that in an accident, you should keep still. So they quieted for the time being until they could hear other people. And later this would come in handy when they actually had reserved their energy to be able to yell when rescuers were coming through near them. Uh-huh. Uh, I just kind of love that. Yeah. So a 20 year old, no, sorry, 21 year old Hazel Weatherby, third, fourth grade teacher had reached out to shield some of the students, a couple of her students into her arms. She would later die as a result of the injuries she'd incurred, but she held on until the rescuers retrieved the two students from under her, which is also just beautiful. I mean, beautiful in tragedy. Right. So the linemen putting in the wiring for consumers energy, they felt the rumble from the explosions. They could see the dust from the school and the fire of the Kehoe farm. And they headed towards the town. They arrived at the, arrived at the farm first and entered a broken window, but found no answer. Then in the corner of the room, they found something dynamite. Shit. Neighbors pulled up and saw the men running from the house screaming, quote, My God, there is enough dynamite in there to blow up the county. So they hightailed the fuck out of there, basically. Yeah. Uh, this is when they heard news of the school and they headed towards there. As they left, they heard more explosions behind them. Damn. Uh, many spotted Kehoe driving towards the school with a strange toothy grin and, and plenty of waves just waved at everybody that he saw. Jackets. Sick fuck. So soon, Kehoe arrived at the school just about 30 minutes past the first explosion. He called Hoik over to his vehicle. Hoik hurried over and he asked him for help because he thought he was coming to help uh, as adults yeah. were. Um, All right, Kehoe replied. I'll take you with me. 
Pike's heart must have dropped as he asked, quote, You know something about this, don't you? This is when the two men were seen to have a struggle over a gun as witness Charles Hawson would go on to later testify. Kehoe would pull the trigger and hit a pile of dynamite that exploded and sent both men into the air a good 60 feet or so apart when they landed. The wake of the explosion sent shrapnel a good distance too, killing or injuring anyone who was nearby. Oh, God. Yeah, there was, I didn't write this down, but there was one story of a boy who had made it out of the initial school and then died from shrapnel in the car. Yeah. The Lansing Fire Department was soon on their way to the scene as word of the disaster was spreading across the region. Alongside them was a truck with a telegraph and phone services. A chief security offer for the Fisher Body Plant was actually a nearby Flint, or Fisher Body Plant in Flint was in Bath for the day. Mm -hmm. And he phoned back and told them to send every man they could to help Bath. He then called Lansing REO Motor Car, who's their competition, and asked them to do the same. Yeah. Personnel at Edwards Barrow Hospital in Lansing were warned about the incoming medical emergencies and beds were installed in the hallways as they didn't even have a pediatrics department. Mm -hmm. Out by the Smith home across from the school, two Red Cross volunteers from Lansing arrived and they were making badges for or bandages for victims. They noticed something on the side of the road. Upon investigation, it was the remains of a body. The face was pretty much in one piece, but the rest of the body was torn apart. They found a wallet and driver's license. Andrew P. Kehoe. A woman passing by screamed, that's the man, upon hearing that name. Three witnesses were called to identify the remains, a high school boy who happened to be around in the area, Mel Keys, a fellow board member, and Sidney Howell, a neighbor. They all identified him. Mm-hmm. Michigan Secret Service Division, which is not affiliated with the feds at all, Yeah. Uh, part of the Michigan Department of Public Safety and Assistant Chief Lyle Moores and his assistant detective William Watkins arrived on the scene around 1020. Again, things are moving relatively quickly. And Lansing police and Ingham County Sheriff began to explore where the blast had come from when they found more dynamite under the building connected to more wires. At 1045 after that discovery, they stopped the rescue effort because they didn't want something else to be set off. Right. So the wires were eventually traced through the ceiling of the basement to more dynamite. Basically, it was all over. And... If it wasn't dynamite there, it was pyrotol, one of the two. Yeah. It all all led to hot shot batteries, which were basically normally used to start cars instead of the crank back in those days. And which Kehoe had purchased in Lansing Mm -hmm. on one of those trips. And the battery was connected to a clock. Had the others gone off, the damage would have been even more extreme. Yeah. Carefully, uh, the blasting caps were dis- disconnected, but some areas were so tight that they actually had to send a 14-year-old named Chester Sweet in. Oh, wow. Uh, not a student, actually. He, was, he had left school to work on the farm, but uh-huh. he had two siblings in the school, so he kind of yeah. just did it, and he could fit in the spaces where they couldn't. So about 500 pounds of unexploded dynamite and pyrotol were pulled from the building that day, as well as 10 blasting caps and two timing devices. It was estimated about 100 pounds of explosives had been detonated beneath the North Wing. So only like a sixth. Yeah. Had gone off. Holy shit. Um, The rescue efforts resumed as soon as they had, you know, dismantled that. Um, The media started to descend on the town. Newspaper writers were coming by all means necessary. Doombach, the lawyer of the Price Estate, he actually heard the news when he was handed a copy of the Lansing State Journal after a luncheon in Lansing that day. Uh This is when he spotted the name Andrew Kehoe. His heart sunk immediately. 
Yeah. He then opened the door to his office and inside were the Price sisters. They couldn't find Nellie. Oh, God. Yeah. The last they heard was she was with those friends in Jackson, Vosts, V-O-S-T-S. Uh-huh. drove them immediately to Jackson, but the Voss told them that Nellie had never been with them. Oh, so they God. headed to Bath. Back at the Kehoe farm, over 62 gallon tanks of water had been poured onto the farmhouse. They hoped to find Nellie's remains, but there still loomed the danger of hidden dynamite. They just didn't know. It was later discovered that a series of wires was used across the property, including into the barn where the two horses were chained up. Unfortunately, they couldn't get away. Of course, a sick fuck. Mm -hmm. And at the edge of the farm, there was a plain wooden sign that had been recently attached. It was stenciled and read in capital letters, quote, criminals are made, not born. Go fuck yourself, Andrew Kehoe. Like, Jesus Christ, what that bad happened to you? You had to pay taxes? Get over your fucking self. Yeah, I mean, like, everybody's got some shit, but like... Take out so many innocent people and animals and whatnot with you. Yeah, not a a good soul. No. Um, There's more. I'm so sorry. I'm trying, I'm... No, I, gotta, I almost did we start crying at part of it, but oh, I know I was going to little teary eyed over here too. Yeah. Um. So around one p.m., Governor Fred Green and his wife showed up to the school. He promised that there would be funding, relief funding, in the coming weeks and state aid. But he, at that moment, he rolled up his sleeves and got to work helping the rescuers move mm-hmm. bricks and things. Uh. Meanwhile, Station Agent Huffman received recalled the weird package that had been sent from Kehoe to Clyde Smith and alerted authorities about it. I was notified, but couldn't imagine what it would be. He had never had any anger or words with Kehoe, really. Uh, What's later, Clyde again? He's a, um, not a lawyer, um, not an accountant. Like a book guy. Bookkeeper? No, that wasn't it either. Now I forget. You got to ask me the hard question. Sad. No, let me, let me just mark where I'm at. Uh, he was a Lansing insurance man. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So later that evening, the package still wasn't there. It did eventually show up that evening, though, in Langsburg. It oh, had gotten sent to, the, sent to the wrong city. Just happens naturally. Of course. Yeah. So it also said high explosives, dangerous on it. So all precautions were taken. It was. Why would they fucking mail that? It was placed in an open police yard, and the next morning, the lid was removed to reveal no dynamite at all. Instead, there was a set of ledger books and a note that read, Dear Sir, I am leaving the school board and turning over to you all of my accounts. They are all in this box. Due to an uncashed check, the bank had 22 cents more than my book showed when I took them over. Due to an error on the part of the secretary in order number 118, Dated November 18th, 1925. He changed the figure on the order after the check had been sent to the payee. The bank gained one cent more over my book, making the bank account show 23 cents more than my book. Otherwise, I am sure you find my books exactly right. I thank you for going my bond. Sincerely yours, A.P. Kehoe. Why did you put that in something that said danger? It's what just a fucking loon. Yeah. So Wednesday was terrible. Yeah. Um, Thursday, there were meetings held to figure out how to monetarily aid the efforts in Lansing. And it was determined that relief money would be funneled through the Red Cross. 
mm-hmm. and all other funds would go towards rebuilding the school. Mm-hmm. Governor Green personally offered to pay for funeral expenses for families that could not afford, afford proper burials, and funds were quickly streaming in from all over. Inmates in an Ionia prison collected $200 for the cause. The Ingham County Tuberculosis Sanitarium contributed $17.80 raised by children. Uh, 25% of the proceeds from a fight in Detroit between Phil McGraw and Click Clap were donated. Uh-huh. Uh, the Tecla Pearl Corporation of New York, what jewelry company, donated a percentage of proceeds from the next weekend sales at Saks Fifth Avenue. And Metropolitan Life Insurance stepped in and kind of nipped this in the bud before it became a problem and authorized Lansing to, quote, Waive all formalities and pay any claims that might arise out of the bath school disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, funds would also quickly come from all over. The thing is, this kind of died down really quickly, though, too. Yeah. As other news kind of. Yeah. On Friday, two state police patrolling the Kehoe farm site took a smoke break near the chicken coop and saw a makeshift wheelbarrow made out of a hog chute attached to some wheels and a metal axle. This is when they noticed the remains of Nellie. In the wheelbarrow? Kind of like on it. Oh, God. Um, it, was, it was more like a plank with wheels. Okay. If that makes sense. There's a, bring out your dead cart. I, yeah. Bring out your dead. Yeah. I, yeah. I, can, I have some photos. Um, nothing, any photos I show, by the way, I'm not going to show anything. I mean, there's nothing. You can't really see stuff. Right. If that makes sense. Because it's old photo. I don't know. Yeah. But I would never. Nothing like. No. Yeah. Yeah. It was hard. If people want to see gross photos, they can look them up. Right, right, right. It was hard to distinguish, though, any specific injuries because it could have been from anything. Yeah. Uh, Theories would circulate eventually, though, that Andrew had possibly hurt her before the explosion, while others thought she was a victim caught just in the explosion's wake. Whatever the case, she was found placed almost ceremonially. And what I mean by that is she was placed very specifically in silverware lay next to her body like the good silverware. There was also a metal box about a foot in length on one side. In it was a lady's gold watch, a brooch, and a chain, earrings, two rings, one opal, one diamond, a dozen teaspoons with a K on the handle, a pin from the Knights of the Maccabees, signed papers, including their marriage license, as well as statements and bills from the hospitals, as well as a large roll of either money or uncashed war bonds from the Great War. Which also raises a thing, did he know about those? Because those could have... Money or war bonds could have helped that whole mortgage issue. Which, like, they, he wasn't paying it anyway, and it didn't seem like he was that concerned about it. Well, that's why it's so weird, because it's like, well... He seemed to have the money, he just didn't want to, like, let go of it. Use it, it. yeah. 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 Uh, over the next few days, the whole town was basically swept to make sure there are no more yeah. dynamite in anywhere. Nothing was found. Newspapers, reporters, and gawkers descended upon the city in mass. Came... Uh, and across the country, crudely sketches of Kehoe ran in the papers that didn't really resemble him at all. Uh, one office, who cares though? Well, it's like they were, it wasn't like a missing person's thing. No. They knew where he was. No. The weird thing is, though, there is pictures of him. So I don't know why they didn't, maybe yeah. they didn't have him yet. But anyway, one officer counted about 2,750 machines to pass through in just about two hours one day. It was estimated that on Sunday, about 85,000 cars passed through the city. Oh, that's a lot for that time, too. Mm-hmm. It started to become a problem, though, because relief workers like the Red Cross couldn't get through. Yeah. Uh, in the meantime, too, a small trial was very quickly, probably too quickly set up. And six jurymen were chosen. They didn't have kids. They were just yeah. locals. 
uh, a makeshift room was set up in community hall. And by Thursday the 19th, the jurors were jurors. Rural jurors. Rural jurors. They were rural jurors. They were rural jurors. This is not They're a funny thing, but I need to laugh right now because I'm yeah. sad. Now available on Sega Genesis. <laughs> um, but they were selected. All in all, over two days, 55 witnesses would be called students, school employees, board members, rescue workers, attorneys, neighbors. And the trial came or the verdict came pretty swiftly. And it was, quote, we find the set. We find that the said Andrew P. Kehoe was sane at all times and conducted himself and concealed his operations that there was no cause oh, to be suspicious of any of the above acts. And we further find the school board and Frank Smith, janitor of said school building, were not negligent in and about their duties and were not guilty of any negligence in not discovering said plan. What a pointless fucking trial. I know. I know. I'm like, what? Like, no, not, yeah. Yeah. So only one person really spoke in defense of Kehoe, a man a friend, I guess, named Sidney J. Howell. He couldn't believe his friend had done it, kind of gave a Jekyll and Hyde kind of defense. And he wanted to clear the name. Unfortunately, this just made things difficult, though. A man even burst through the crowd to try and strangle him while he was doing this. Eventually, public disdain caused him to leave town. It was later reported he was killed when his car was struck by a train. Damn. Some, yeah. Some thought it was an accident. Some thought it might have been intentional. Yeah. Uh, by the weekend, funerals were starting to be held. There was a tight schedule basically in place because everywhere was busy. Um, people were still coming to catch a glimpse, like looky lose. Yeah, just. Yeah. During Nellie's funeral, there was almost a fight between reporters and their family in Lansing. Uh, Andrew himself, he was actually buried anonymously. One of his sisters purchased a casket and had numerous holes dug around uh, an area to confuse people. <laughs> As to where he was actually buried, needless to say, he was not put in the family plot to say their bias sister, one of his brothers and a few friends stayed in a car in the potter's field and uh, didn't get out. Yeah. In the end. This would all result in the death of 38 children. Four adults. One of them was the superintendent. One of them was a local farmer. Two of them were. Uh, teachers and then Nellie uh, and then Andrew another 58 people were injured many of them quite severely and this doesn't even take into account how the families in the area was affected yeah the Lansing State Journal referred to Bath as quote a valley of tears uh, one family even lost three children and had a fourth oh. one in the hospital yeah so this is um the how was known, the why will never be known. There were assessments made. Medical scientists at Owasso Memorial Hospital gave a collective diagnosis a few days later that he was manic, depressive, and paranoid. Others would claim him to be a psychopath. According to the Harris Psychopathy Checklist, glibness or superficial charm, grandiose sense of self-worth, pathological lying, conning, manipulation, lack of remorse or guilt, shallow effect. Callous, lack of empathy, poor behavioral control, lack of realistic long-term goals, failure to accept responsibility for actions. Uh, they can all kind of point to that. And he yeah. kind of proved all, or he did have all of those yeah. um, actions. Again, people really liked him for some reason. Like he did have like a way about him, like a charm. Yeah. But the why, you know, we'll never know. 
Yeah. Truly. On June 16th, Senator Cousins, Senator Cousins and Governor Green toured the remains of, and visited with those still in the hospital. I think it's Cousins. I think so. Yeah. Uh, Cousins. I know I've heard. I've seen the name. I've heard the name. I know there's street? streets. Yeah. yeah. Cousins announced he would personally fund the rebuilding of the schools. Oh. Some out-of-town visitors continue for some time. And some kind of took advantage, not took advantage of it, but some kind of made the best of it. Monty Ellsworth actually wrote a book to be sold to passersby. Uh-huh. However, there were some errors in the book. Most notably, he stated that Kehoe was 14 when his stepmother was exploded by a stove. Uh, not 40, which is a vast. Yeah. He was 40? He was 40 when that happened. Yeah. Because remember, he was only three years older than her. They And he went away for a while and then he came, moved back. Oh, yeah. And he was 25 or so. How old was he when he did all this? Like in his 50s, maybe? I can do math. Definitely in his 50s. Okay. Yeah. I think he was like 53, 54, something like that. Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, I, I could go back and look updates. We don't need. But yeah, I, I, I can say 50s. Okay. 53 is standing out to me. But okay. I, yeah. Um, uh, on July 19th, workers found a stack of dynamite in a kerosene-soaked rug beneath the school. One month later, another package of explosives was discovered containing about 244 sticks of dynamite, or about 200 pounds worth. In the school? Mm-hmm. Damn. So they found more. August 18th of 1928. Uh, well, and basically, they decided to rebuild the school. Uh-huh. They were going to go ahead and do that. Uh, and. And on August 18th of 1928, there was a ceremony dedicated to the new facility. In the meantime, students, when they had gone back to school, they were actually just going all around town. There was like stories about them meeting in like the back of the grocery store and like just Swear random spots. They could find space. Mm-hmm. And um, they named the new facility James Cousins Agricultural School because of his $75,000 contribution. Fair. The new building, there was a copper statue of a 10-year-old girl holding a cat under her right arm. It was created by Carlton Angel of the University of Michigan and funded by school children throughout the state who donated pennies. They came from all all of Michigan's 500 school districts. That's adorable. Mm -hmm. And the statue actually still exists in the new high school now because this building has since been uh, torn torn down. And it was meant to honor the, the innocence of being a child, not necessarily like yeah. yeah. There is memorials around town. There is plaques and things with, yeah. with the victims' names. Um, and the Kehoe property reverted back to the Price Estate. Then it was donated to the Sisters of Mercy Catholic Order, who's the hosp- who ran the hospital Nellie had spent a lot of time in. And uh-huh. it would change hands throughout the years. It really never became too much. Yeah. And there is actually one Bath resident who is still alive. Her name is Irene Dunham. She was not at school that day. She actually had a sore throat, so she didn't go. She was 19 at the time, though, about to finish her last year. And this past December, she actually celebrated her 113th birthday. She's the oldest person in Michigan currently and the sixth oldest in the United States. Nice. I will post. Okay, I will post this. I I do like to honor the victims. In this case, there was many, many victims. Yeah. I think it's important to give them a name. Again, with there being so many, they were definitely going to post an image with their names and just, I don't know. I just think it's nice to take a second. No, for sure. To kind of think about that. And yeah, that is the story. And most of this came from the source 
a book called Bath Massacre, America's First School Bombing by Arnie Bernstein. Uh-huh. A little Wikipedia. And then an article from the Lansing State Journal called Lansing's Irene Dunham, the oldest surviving student of bath bombing is now Michigan's oldest resident by Rachel Greco published in March of 2021. And that is a horrible tear on history, but. It's uh, something that, you know, we can't lose to history. We need to remember this stuff. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it is, it's so sad that like, Parts of some human psyche that kind of go to these places and that right. this isn't unheard of. Right. But yeah, you can't necessarily forget about it either. So, yeah. Well, thank you for bringing this story. Yeah. It was, um, I do have some two truths yes. and a lie to yes. Let's do close it. Close us out. Um, I did it. And one of the two categories that I always do, it's not share. It's not share. I was just about to say share. Is it about Mama Mia then? No. Earring? Bond. Oh, Bond. I have a Bond earring on right now. Uh, I'm just because I've been like, like, uh-huh. just, I wrote in the notes of this one. I've been on my Bond shit lately. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, so the category is bold choice Bond actors. People that have been here. People who have appeared in the Bond movies. I'm okay. going to read you three people. And one of appeared them. Appeared in any role? Yes. Okay. Like, they're kind of like actors not known. Like, they're okay. like so. Mm-hmm. The three actors are, mm-hmm. the three people, I should say. Tim Curry, Madonna, and Christopher Walken. Oh, God. I'm going to say the lie is Christopher Walken. That is actually true. Damn it. He played a villain in A View to Kill who wanted to... Get a microchip monopoly by triggering an earthquake along the San Andreas Fault. I actually chose him because he seemed like the most obvious of the three. No, yeah, he he's it's an interesting one. Yeah, it's like late seventies, early eighties, so it's like weird. That it's about microchips, and it's like he's gonna get a monopoly by taking uh-huh. out a facility in California. Microchips? Okay. Today, that's not where you do that. At. Huh. You don't do microchips there no more. Uh huh. Well, then we do. It's just not as big a scale as no. in Asia. Um, so it's Tim Curry and Madonna. I'm gonna go Tim Curry. That is the lie, but okay. he would have been a great villain. I love Tim Curry. No, Madonna was in Die Another Day in 2002. I feel like I kind I don't I I would never have been able to know what movie, yeah. but that that one felt I I wasn't she gonna plays choose a that fencing one. instructor. Oh, that is weird though. Named Verity. Yeah. Oh, that's weird. Yep. yep. <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. So just some honorable mentions. Uh huh. Minnie Driver. Love her. She plays Robbie Coltrane, who played Hagrid, who is also in Goldeneye. They're both in Goldeneye, but she plays um, his mistress. Okay. And so like her only, she's in the movie for maybe about a minute or two, mm-hmm. wearing like, this like sparkly red cowboy outfit, just standing on stage, stand by your man. Good for her. Yep. Which Bond goes, who's strangling a cat? <laughs> Just fully a bit part, but love it. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. was in the original cut of Diamonds Are Forever, but uh, okay. his scenes were eventually taken out. Not okay. sure why. Uh, Sir Richard Branson, who owns the Virgin Group, like Virgin Airlines, Virgin Wireless, oh, okay. Virgin Space Planes, most recently. Uh, he was in Casino Royale going through security in that movie. They, 
a couple of scenes in that movie happen in the airport. What a choice. But funnily enough, um, the version of Casino Royale that showed on Virgin Planes, they stripped out that scene and any mention of Virgin. Just because oh. they don't want you thinking about the planes. Yeah. Because. Yeah. That makes sense, I guess. Yeah. I just thought it was funny. They even removed the scene yeah. that had like, their CEO in it. No, that is weird. Um, I almost used this one, but since he's technically not like an Eon Bond, it's like the unofficial Bond. Uh-huh. Uh, Woody Allen played a Bond villain. That actually doesn't surprise me that much. Really? I could see him getting into that. Yeah. Just because it's like kind of like gritty. Yeah. Like villain. A villain. Yeah, I, I wouldn't see him playing like Brooklyn villain. In Bond. It's weird. I could see that, though. I yeah. could see that being like a dream role for him or something weird and him being yeah. like, yeah, you know, or something. Definitely. That's that Bond movie is one I recommend you watch exactly one time. Like it's 19. I think it's 1967 Casino Royale. OK. I'm going to watch one movie one time. So yes. you have to choose know, better, the best one for me. I know. Uh, and just a last fun fact. Michael G. Wilson, who is a producer and screenwriter on the series, uh-huh. has made 16 cameos throughout the series. Oh, wow. Um, his first one was in 64's Goldfinger, where he played one of the soldiers at Fort Knox. Okay. And then basically in every Eon Productions Bond movie since 1977, he's made at least one cameo in. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Good for him. Yeah, I was just <laughs> thinking about all the random people that have been in Bond movies today, and I was like, that's my two truths and a lie. No, that's fine. I like... I. I like when we do the deep dive ones, but I also like when there's like a, which one of these isn't yeah. one. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I Madonna's a fencing instructor. A lot of them. Uh, I promise I'll have a, a fun, quick one coming up. Okay. I feel like I've talked a lot lately, so I'm going to talk less. Talk less and. I mean, it's a podcast. Do something else more. Oh, yeah. That's the point. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, if you want to continue hearing us talk or you have some ideas of what we should talk about. Slide into them DMs on our social medias at Detroit Strange on Instagram and Twitter. Detroit Strange on Facebook and Detroit Strange at gmail.com is our email address. I love that you picked up that cue. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, if you want to support the show, you could always give us a good old five star rating on Apple. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if you leave us a little review, we're going to read it. Yeah. We love to read things. Yeah. Give us stuff to read. Yeah. You can also support the show on Patreon. Yep. Detroit Strange. You can also head over to Threadless. There is a shop there. Get some merch. I'm also working on getting one of those buy me a coffee things, but I have not been able to figure out how to set up that account yet. I've seen the emails. I'm like, what is this? Jess is working on something. <laughs> I will finish that at some point. Okay. It's basically like Venmo. Like you can just send like it's a one time thing. Right. It's like, not a yeah. buying a coffee. So if you're interested in that, kick me in the butt and tell me to do that. Right. And until, until next, next time, time, the hundredth episode. The hundredth time. One hundred. Keeping it one hundred. <laughs> yes. But until then. <laughs> stay, stay strange. This has been a production of Planet Ant Podcast. Powered by Pinecast. Our theme song was recorded by Detroit's own Sax and Violence.